Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Today is Thursday, January 13th, 2022. Coming up, a Roland Martin on a filtered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. Breaking news out of Baltimore, where the city's chief prosecutor, Marilyn Mosby, has been indicted by a federal grand jury. She's accused of perjury and making false mortgage, false mortgage applications. We'll talk with her attorney, A. Scott Bolden. Also today, uh, a big drama when it comes to voting rights in Congress. Last night, the House passed the voting rights bill. Today, President Joe Biden went to the United States Senate to implore and rally Democrats to support it. But before he even spoke, Arizona Christian, Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema uh, put a dagger in his heart by saying she absolutely will not support any of the filibuster, but she supports the bills and saying it needs to be bipartisan. Yo, show us the 10 votes, Kristen. Show us the 10 votes. We'll talk with Melanie Campbell, president and CEO of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation uh, about this. We'll also talk with Congressman Hakeem Jeffries. We'll also uh, break down Senator Tim Scott, who says he was offended by President Biden's speech in Atlanta. How about we offended by you being a black Republican in Congress? You're no, you're no, Senator Edward Brooke. In a strange case out of Pennsylvania, a Jamaican immigrant goes hunting with his white co-workers. He ends up dead. We'll talk to the chair of the Allegheny County Democratic Caucus about the murder investigation of Peter Spencer. As of today, uh, there's only one black head coach in the NFL. We'll talk with sports journalist Josina Anderson about the latest developments after the Houston Texans fired David Culley after just one year. Also, we will follow up on the story about the case of the Ohio paraplegic man who was pulled out of his car by his hair. Mm. The only wrongdoing they were guilty of was muting their body cameras. Really? And Mattel adds Ida B. Wells' uh, uh, Barnett uh, Barbie doll to their Inspiring Women series. Folks, it is time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. Let's go.
A federal grand jury has indicted Baltimore City State's, Baltimore City State's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, on perjury related to a COVID financial hardship withdrawal and a false statement on a loan application. According to the indictment, Mosby requested a one-time withdrawal of $40,000 from her city employee retirement account. The indictment states that Mosby had not experienced adverse financial consequences stemming from the coronavirus. How do they know? She's charged with two counts of perjury and two counts of making a false statement. Her attorney, A. Scott Bolden, joins us right now. Uh, Scott, uh, the feds had been, uh, we've had you on before, uh, and the feds had been looking at all sorts of things, uh, taxes and all kinds of different stuff. So I'm just curious, they, it's her money. The, the exactly. It's 40,000 her money, and they are saying she didn't establish a hardship to be able to withdraw her money? Because her, they allegedly argue that her salary was not infect, affected by that. But let me tell you something about that statute. That statute says if you've been affected financially in any way, and remember, Marilyn Mosby had businesses, if you will. And so those businesses were in the travel space, and they were affected by it, and her accountant urged her to take that money, and she took that money and built uh, or bought uh, at least one home, maybe two homes, with her 401k money that she had access to. Now, she so, did not, Marilyn Mosby, she didn't apply for a PPP loan. No, so she used her own 401k she, money. So, right, she didn't go for a PPP loan. She requested her own money. Exactly. And then with the with the with the perjury statements, you remember last time I was on, I said they would not tell us what the perjury were or the statements were before they indicted. How can you charge me with perjury and not tell your defense counsel these are the statements we're looking at? Well, when you look at the bank statements, and it's been clear, her husband, as well as the bankers in this case, knew that she didn't know about these uh, these tax liens that were out there. In fact, she never received a copy of the tax lien, but her bankers even know that she didn't know about the tax lien. They were told after the fact by us, and they had no problem with adjusting the loan whatsoever. And then look at the indictment. What's, what's telling about the indictment isn't what's in there, it's what's not in there. And what's not in there is criminal tax evasion or any criminal tax-related charges that they originally argued that they were looking at. That's what the one meeting we did have that was the focus of that meeting. And over the last three months, we've asked to meet with the U.S. Attorney for Maryland, the new one, African-American, Democrat, and he has refused to meet with us. The team has refused to meet with us. Had they met with us, we could have certainly given them exculpatory information. Had they put her in the grand jury or confirmed that our exculpatory evidence that we have was gone into the grand jury, we certainly could have avoided all of this. So very disappointing on the part of the prosecutors, federal prosecutors, but we are energized, and she is energized to prove them wrong and to prove her case and to provide facts, because this was her money. This was not public money under any circumstances. This was not PP money. And so uh, the government's going to have a hell of a time, going to have a hell of a time trying to prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt, and we're ready for that fight. Uh, and last time you were on... The U.S. attorney who was leading the investigation, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't he give to her opponent in the last election? Not only did he give to both of her opponents, not only did he give to both of her opponents, but the uh, DOJ's professional 
uh, Responsibility Division said they refused to act and remove those prosecutors. Now, in the interim, they sent an email to me in regard to my protest of them leading the department later uh, and indicated that it was okay for them to give money to her, to her opponents because they were candidates of color and therefore there could be no racial animus. That's like saying I got a black friend so I can't be a racist. But they put that in writing to me. They then tried to pull it back because they forgot to take me off the email chain. <laughs> they were sending it to the U.S. attorney and I told them, too late. And then I explained to them about their white privilege and all that it meant and how embarrassing and offensive their statement to a black prosecutor was in that case. That's fact. They put it in writing. So, again, uh, they, are, uh, they are alleging that she... So, so the, the perjury part, I mean, that's... I mean, obviously... So they're saying that she lied on a loan application. Yeah. What, what she did was every loan application says, tell us all your debts, have you paid all your taxes, and so forth and so on. And as far as she knew at the time on both of those loan applications that she didn't owe the federal government any money. Her husband has sworn out in an affidavit to that effect that he did not tell her. And the bank knows that because she told the bank after the fact that they did not, she did not know. Her husband told the bank that she did not know. And so now the bankers knew and they were, they, they didn't want to do anything to, to adjust the loan. The loan was performing. And so it, it's unclear how the federal government or the federal prosecutors are going to prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. She's indicted now, and now we fight, and the fight will continue. Scott Bolden, uh, we appreciate it. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. By the way, this is the first interview I've done since that indictment came out, because I want to be first on the Black Star Network. All right. We appreciate that. Thanks a lot. <laughs> appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Uh, I want to quickly go to my panel before I go to my voting rights story. Long Victoria Burke. Uh, joins us right now, uh, of course, writes uh, for the NPA uh, and others, Greg Carr, Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University, uh, for Roger Muhammad, radio show host and TV show host. I, th th Lauren, I want to I start with you. Um, to have prosecutors investigating and going after Marilyn Mosby and they gave to her opponents in the last election, I'm sorry, that should be an automatic recusal. Right, absolutely. And when I hear things about misleading paperwork, and I think about, obviously, who Marilyn Mosby is. She is the youngest prosecutor in the country at 41 years old. And we know that she's prosecuted police officers. And obviously, uh, she's a historic person, just like Kim Fox and Stephanie Morales, other black female prosecutors in this country. I want to see some evidence. It sounds extremely subjective. I want to see exactly what evidence they have. You, you mean to tell me with all of the PPE, all that money that went out uh, for COVID relief, et cetera, and so on, that we saw going back and forth and, you know, Trump's in-laws disproportionately getting money and all this, you're telling me that this is the only federal indictment that we've heard of in the news of really anybody I think of that's prominent? No way. I, I, want, to see, I want to see details. I want to see evidence. And... Uh, that that is <laughs> that is very interesting. And, and one, once once I saw it, it was one of your producers actually told me about it. I didn't know anything about it. I was driving all day, and uh, I could not believe it. And you know, she's one of the rarest prosecutors in the country in terms of the actions she's taken with regard to prosecuting police officers. And obviously, in the Freddie Gray case, 
she prosecuted six police officers, which, of course, is unheard of in this country until very recently, last few years. That spells uh, too much of a coincidence for me, to say the least. Uh, Faraji, uh, you have forces in Baltimore that have not been happy with Marilyn Mosby, to the point that Lauren just made. They did not like her prosecuting uh, uh, these cops. Also, she has been at war <laughs> with Governor Larry Hogan, who has been claiming she wasn't prosecuting folks uh, who are committing violent crimes. And then she came out with the receipts, laying out exactly what the office has done. Uh, and so uh, your thoughts on this federal, federal indictment? I mean, it's a sad day, another sad day in Baltimore City, just because, you know, you have a black woman in a very powerful position that's being um, just maligned in this manner. And I mean, I'm looking in the chat, Brother Roland, folks are like, you really are getting prosecuted or indicted, rather, for borrowing against your own 401k. <laughs> but, 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 more <laughs> but more importantly, I, I think that this is, this is, this is going to, um, in Baltimore, you know, we've had mayors and other political officials that have undergone indictments. Of course, we've heard about Catherine Pugh. We've heard about, you know, Sheila Dixon. We, there has been... Um, a lot of criticism about the leadership of Stephanie Rawlins Blake. I mean, you're talking about Joan Carter, uh, Joan Conway, um, who was the, the city's comptroller for many years in Baltimore. I mean, there has been a lot of conversation about black women in leadership and then black women leading major uh, in, in major offices. Regardless of how the situation may play out, if she found that she did not do any wrongdoing, the smear is on her already. She has a big election coming up this year um, for her seat. And so for a smear like this to happen at this particular time, it's going to affect how people see her, all that has undergone between her and the governor. Again, it's going to go back into it, and it's going to put a question. All it has to do, you and I know it, Brother Roland, all it has to do is put a question in the minds of potential voters to say, is this the person that you want holding mm -hmm. this position? Now, Marilyn Mosby, according to the reports, she made a full earning of $247,955.58. That was her earnings from January 1 of 2020 to December of 2020. 200, nearly $250,000. She's one of the most, she's one of the highest paid polit uh, officials in the city of Baltimore. So when you're looking at that, it just puts a question mark. That's all you need to do to disrupt people from following. She has a strong, she has a loyal base in the city of Baltimore. But when you have all of this smear, when you have all of this kind of, uh, um, you know, folks are, uh, are figuring out whether they should trust you or not, and all of this, it, it, it just puts a whole damper, not just on her role and just her individually and her family, but it puts a damper again back on the spotlight of black women it puts a damper on leadership in Baltimore. And, I mean, we've just taken so many hits on this, on, on things like this, and it's really, really sad and unfortunate. Even if she wins, there's still a loss there that we're going to feel as, as the citizen residents of Baltimore. Greg? Well, absolutely. I think Lauren and, 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 and Faraji have laid it out. Um, <clears throat> we're talking about minority rule in the modern world. Uh, minority rule globally. Minority rule in this country called United States of America. And we're talking about people, black people in this country who don't make up the numeric majority, uh, too many of whom are confused about what, how political power is wielded, 
And uh, as you say, Faraji, who might make a decision based on this sister and her husband taking their own money and not and understand that this lump white nationalist, soft white nationalist in, in, in Annapolis, Larry Hogan, trying to maintain his own political viability as part of a larger uh, country network of white nationalists trying to insert minority rule are attempting to dirty this sister up. Unfortunately, uh, here, you know, in the United States in general, in Baltimore and in Maryland in particular, we don't have the numbers to do what Mia Amor Motley did, the new the prime minister of the new Republic of Barbados, which is called a snap election for the end of this month to get ahead of the wagons that are circling around her because she is a, a, a black woman on the global stage thumbing her nose at white supremacy because the other nations in the Caribbean are starting to say, you know, we're going to we want to be a republic, too. We're going to get away from England. So before they can target her, she's got the power to call an election and cement her power beyond 2023. But Marilyn Mosby can't do that. She got a soft mm -hmm. half of white nationalists in Annapolis who's got her in his political gun sights because he's trying to extend her power, and everybody knows that black people are hated. There's no news here. This is Marion Barry. There's no news here. This is every black elected official that you have. Derek Musgrove wrote a book about this a couple of years ago. They target them because white minority rule is not just a global enterprise, it's a local win. And unfortunately, Imagine that, though. Imagine that. Imagine that. I'm thinking about Paul Robeson and the Emperor Jones, his famous line, there's little stealing like you does and big stealing like I does. The sitting governor of Ohio, in a story you're going to talk about in a minute, Mike DeWine, his son in the damn court of Ohio and wouldn't recuse himself. These criminals steal big. And then this sister can't even take her own money? Y'all go to hell. But then she got to pay Scott Bowling. This is a, this is a, this is a nuasance lawsuit. Well, uh, well, what we're dealing with here, of course, and we talk about uh, power, we see that happen on Capitol Hill when it came to voting. President Joe Biden went to Capitol Hill today to rally senior Democrats to stand behind his call to get rid of the filibuster for a carve-out on voting rights. This is after last night where the House moved a voting rights bill. Well, prior to him even speaking, Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema went to the floor and said, no go, I'm not doing it. Uh, we're going to play that in a little bit. In a little bit. I want to first, though, go to uh, the leader of the House Democrats, uh, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, who joins us right now. Congressman, uh, glad you could uh, get us in today. Uh, first and foremost, and again, I'm going to play it a little bit later, but has Kristen Sinema ever read a history book? The 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments were Reconstruction Amendments. The then radical Republicans said, we're not going to sit here and wait on these racist uh, Democrats. We're going to pass these laws. And they passed them. Now you have not a single Republican last night. Now it's been flipped. Not last night, not one Republican voted with House Democrats. Not one Senate Republican has stepped up to support changes when it comes to voting rights. So what in the hell is Cinema and Manchin talking about about bipartisanship? Yeah, it's a very good question, Roland. Always good to see you. And the challenge that we have right now is that the Republicans have decided as a matter of electoral strategy to engage in voter suppression. They've abandoned the notion of engaging in a contest of ideas, and they've concluded that the only way for them to consistently win elections is to suppress the vote. And that is why we are where we are, because in the immediate aftermath, as you know, of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, voting rights was largely, as a matter of public policy, a settled question. 
between Democrats and Republicans. It was bipartisan. The Voting Rights Act uh, was reauthorized four different times uh, in the nearly five decades since its initial passage. And every single time the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized and signed into law, it was done so by a Republican president. 1970, Richard Nixon. 1975, Gerald Ford. 1982, Ronald Reagan, of all people, 2006, George W. Bush. What happened, we might all ask? Some of us think perhaps it was the 2008 election of Barack Obama. Something changed in this modern-day Republican Party where they decided to walk away from voting rights as a bipartisan issue. And hopefully, at some point, Manchin and Cinema will realize what all of us have seen and understand that the only way to proceed is the same way that the then radical Republicans proceeded when they passed the 15th Amendment guaranteeing the right to vote without a single Democrat, Dixiecrat, Southern racist, whatever you might call them, supporting that constitutional amendment. Uh, and it was the right thing to do, and it's withstood the test of time then, and it's the right thing to do now to proceed, uh, even if that means just Democrats. Uh, as I listen to her talk, I would wonder if she was in the Senate in the 1960s, if she would even vote for the Voting Rights Act by saying, oh, if, you know, you got to have bipartisanship. I mean, it, it, no, we can't end the filibuster. Oh, my goodness, what, hap what happened with the ending of the filibuster uh, that Senator Edward Brooke led when it came to paving the way uh, to pass the Fair Housing Act, the 1968 Civil Rights Act? I mean, uh, to me, what is so delusional is there's this notion that, oh, Democrats haven't made an effort to reach Republicans. The effort has been made. They don't care. They do not, they do not want this to happen because they see what's on the horizon. They see the changes. They are pissed off with what happened in Georgia. They are angry that there are two Democratic senators from Georgia. They saw what happened in 2008 when then-Senator Barack Obama won North Carolina by 14,100 votes. And what did the Republicans do in North Carolina? Immediately changed the voting laws, targeted early voting, targeted black voters, and a federal court, federal judges said, oh, that was laser-like precision, the targeting of black voters. So I'm, I'm sitting there like, what the hell world are these Democrats in the Senate living in by, oh, let's, let's, keep, let's keep the filibuster, because if we're not in the majority uh, in the future, this is going to backfire on us. You about to guarantee you're not in the majority. You're correct about that. And Ms. McConnell's about as gangster a politician as we've seen in modern American history. And he will change that filibuster rule in a minute if it served his interest. And we know that because he's already done it. They changed the filibuster that did apply to Supreme Court justices, got rid of it, and as a result, stole two Supreme Court justices, one from President Obama that he held up until Trump became president. Then they changed the filibuster rule uh, to elevate a Trump-nominated justice. And then they stole the Ruth Bader Ginsburg seat using the filibuster exception that they created to Supreme Court uh, confirmations. It's unbelievable that you've got some folks that think that we should play nice while the other side is playing for keeps. And, 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 and I keep reminding people, all of these laws being passed on the state level are being passed by simple majority. That's, that's correct. And that's a, that's a very important point as well. So that they're passing 
uh, uh, voter suppression laws with a simple majority, often, uh, in, you know, partisan lines. And we got some folks who, um, you know, I, I mean, I just, I, it's, it's, it's hard to understand. I think we just have to continue to make the case. The filibuster, as you know, as you've been talking about, Roland, it, it's not in the Constitution. The word does not appear in the Constitution. This is a, a rule that was created in part to justify and try to maintain the vestiges of slavery and certainly to maintain Jim Crow and black civil rights legislation. That's the filibuster's history. That's what it seems a handful of senators are continuing to defend. Well, Congressman, what also has to happen, uh, and again, if this is going to be the position of cinema, it's going to be the position of Manchin and also several other Democrats, such as Mark Kelly and Tester and others who have been sort of riding the fence. What it also means is that means that we have these U.S. Senate races uh, this year, North Carolina, with uh, Sherry Beasley, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Mandela may very well win there. Whoever wins the domination in Pennsylvania, uh, those are three critical places. And of course, you got uh, the races in Ohio and uh, Florida. It's going to be incumbent to win to me three out of those five in order uh, to negate the votes of these folks. And the reason I also support and I hope Schumer goes through with this vote, we need every person on record to see exactly where they stand. A great point. We got Tim Ryan in Ohio, and of course, uh, my friend, my colleague, great member of the House, Val Demings in Florida. And, you know, this is within reach if we can increase the Senate majority. And I believe we can do it. You can't do it without energizing your base communities. Uh, but, you know, our, our civil rights heroes, the great John Lewis, Dr. King, others, they fought through turbulence, they fought through obstacles. When they came into a town, they weren't greeted with wine and roses. They were greeted with billy clubs and fire hoses. We can certainly fight through uh, what we're fighting through right now and come out stronger on the other side. And that's what I'd encourage everyone to continue to do. And I know, you know, Roland, you'll be right there leading the fight. Indeed. Congressman Hakeem Jeffers, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Roland. All right, folks. Uh, as I was telling you, uh, the nonsense that we heard today uh, from Arizona Christian Cinema was just was an abomination. Listen to this bullshit. I share the concerns of civil rights advocates and others I've heard from in recent months about these state laws. I strongly support those efforts to contest these laws in court and to invest significant resources into these states to better organize and stop efforts to restrict access at the ballot box. And I strongly support and will continue to vote for legislative responses to address these state laws, including the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act that the Senate is currently considering. I support these bills because they strengthen Americans' access to the ballot box, and they better ensure that Americans' votes are counted fairly. It is through elections that Americans make their voices heard, select their representatives, and guide the future of our countries and our community. These bills help treat the symptoms of the disease, but they do not fully address the disease itself. And while I continue to support these bills, I will not support separate actions that worsen the underlying disease of division infecting our country. The debate over the Senate 60 vote threshold shines a light on our broader challenges. 
There's no need for me to restate my long-standing support for the 60-vote threshold to pass legislation. There's no need for me to restate its role protecting our country from wild reversals in federal policy. It is a view I've held during my years serving in both the U.S. House and the Senate, and it is the view I continue to hold. It is the belief that I have shared many times in public settings and in private settings. <laughs> that was just a straight this, up lie. This disease, <laughs> Melanie Campbell, here's what is so shameful about that. Oh my God, this disease that we have. <laughs> they are living in Disney World. They are, oh my God, we have, I mean, we've got to be able to get along and work with one another and share and zero Republicans in the House. Not 10. Not five, not one, zero. We've had multiple votes in the Senate, zero Republicans. So I'm trying to figure out from Cinnamon Mansion, where are these magical 10 Republicans going to show up from? Melanie? I'm gonna try my best to keep my composure because I've been I've been having to to to, to fend off my cussing gene. Um, that was uh, that I, I that was the most despicable <laughs> uh, speech I've heard in a long time, and I, I I'm really trying to hold my 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 composure because of what's at stake, Roland. My thing is if you don't support the party agenda, the party that you are a part of's agenda. Why are you a Democrat? That's the question I have. Um, and what she did today um, uh, shows us that we we have a lot of work to do. And, and did it, and did it before Biden met before, with Democrats. So just, it, was, it was downright damn disrespectful. Uh, so I'm quite sure he's not happy. Uh, but I can tell you, it, if we have 48 people who believe in the agenda of this administration... Hold up, Melanie, hold up, hold up, Melanie, Melanie, do we have 48? Hold up, do we have 48? I said, well, I think we're closer to 48 than we were a month ago because you've seen Tester and some of them come out and say that they, that they were ready for that. I think right now, and I don't have all of that in front of me, but I believe there's more that are. There were many who were hiding behind Manchin and Cinema. That's a fact. But people were moving in the right direction. But what she did was undercut all of her colleagues and say, I, I alone know best for everybody else. So Arizona folks are going to have to rise up and decide. Is, and, I'm, and I'm quite sure from what I'm hearing that people are going to start rising up and challenging her in a way that she not used to being challenged. Well, here's uh, the deal, but, but, but here's the deal. A third of, of, of Arizona are Latinas. But, 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 but Melanie, here's the deal. Melanie, she don't give a shit. 
She hasn't had a single... No, no. She hasn't had a single town hall in three years. Mm-hmm. She has refused to meet with activists. All, yeah. but, oh, she will happily go raise her money from Republican donors. She's... Yeah. You know, I'm telling you right now, she ain't running for re-election in 2024. She's looking to pocket all the money that she can. Uh, and so... And to sit there and that half-assed tear... And it being was, this whole, was, oh, John Lewis and I support. It was, it was, uh, it was uh, the, that was a smugness that really bothered me. Her de- demeanor uh, came across um, in, in a way that just reminds me of white, white privilege um, to, um, at the cost of uh, not just voting rights, but at the cost of the democracy itself that she claims to. Uh, be concerned about. So we, there is a challenge, but we're gonna, we have to keep fighting. Uh, and it may not happen this week, but it has to happen. Um, and I'm sure uh, we have to just keep fighting. I, I, I don't, and I think also that people, and, and, and let's say you're right, that, that she doesn't care, she doesn't plan to run again. Well, then maybe they need to decide whether they want to keep her in there for three more years. I mean, you can, I think you can. <laughs> you do a, a recall vote on somebody last I checked. Hey, uh, if I, matter of fact, I don't, I don't know if Arizona has a recall. Uh, I'll, yeah, I'm going to check, but I was I was supported a thousand percent because this woman is shameful uh, and despicable. Um, Melanie, we appreciate it. We're going to keep keep the fight up. Uh, and again, I want that vote to happen on Monday because I want right. I want to know where everybody stands. Yeah, I totally agree, Roland. All right, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Uh, I, I mentioned the 15th Amendment, folks, and, of course, Congressman Jim Clyburn, a uh, strong believer in the history, historian himself. This is what he said. But it was the 15th Amendment. It took a, another amendment to the Constitution to give the newly freed slaves a right to vote. Mm-hmm. That Amendment passed on a straight party line vote. So we take exception, grave exception, when anybody tells us that legislation cannot have credibility unless it is bipartisan. You're saying to us that the 15th Amendment is without credibility. So we're asking all of our friends inside and outside the Congress, to be careful with that. That's not what history teaches us. And then, of course, you have uh, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, the only black Republican in the United States Senate, the man who uh, doomed the George Floyd Justice Act, lied about it. But Yeah, I'm going to say it, he lied. I told y'all, he lied. Oh, Democrats was the, it was a bridge too far. They were asking uh, that if if uh, if the if the cops didn't abide, funds get cut. When he said the exact same thing a year earlier, and when I text messaged him, and when I brought it up to his staff, he has yet to respond. And I sent it more than once, and his staff has yet to respond because they know they were busted in a lie. He went on Fox News and had this BS to say after Biden's speech. 
You saw President Biden talking about voting rights and oh. the legislation that he really wants to push through. Um, as you heard me talking about a moment ago with your colleague, Senator Thune, um, he basically said that anybody who's not on board with this is equivalent of Bull Connor or Jefferson Davis. He also talked about getting arrested. Um, and this is a reference he's made before during civil rights um, activity. Watch this. I did not walk in the shoes of generations of students who walked these grounds, but I walked other grounds because I'm so damn old I was there as well. They think I'm kidding, man. <laughs> Seems like yesterday, the first time I got arrested. Anyway. What do you think about that, Senator? Uh, Martha, that is disheartening. Uh, and the, the importance of the civil rights movement can never be overstated. The fact that we have a president of these United States looking for a way to get laughs at a rally around lying to people about voting is just hard to digest. But as a Southerner, I'm offended. I'm insulted that he refuses to recognize the tremendous progress made by Americans, not by Republicans or Democrats, not by black folks or white folks, by Americans coming together to fight for the rights of every single man, woman to vote. How he missed the opportunity to shine the bright light on progress and instead use something that has been proven to be untrue time and time again, his being arrested. Yeah. It's just offensive to me as a Southerner, but more importantly, it's offensive to me as an American. We fought too hard, too long for the progress that he is denying. I just have a couple, a quick second, but I want to ask you one more thing because uh, Senator McConnell said today, you know, you need a, it really struck me. He said you need a driver's license and a Vax card well, to go anywhere. Well, as a native Texan, Senator Tim Scott, I'm offended that you are that clueless with what you just had to say. I'm offended, uh, Senator uh, Scott, that you are operating as a modern-day Isaiah T. Montgomery. Isaiah T. Montgomery was the black man who was the only person, again, the only one, who attended the Mississippi Convention in 1890, the Mississippi Constitutional Convention where they voted to strip black people of the right to vote. And Isaiah T. Montgomery went along with it. Since that 1890, not one African-American has been elected statewide in Mississippi as a result. And Isaiah T. Montgomery, come on guys, show it. Isaiah T. Montgomery goes down in history as being a traitor to black people in Mississippi. The problem that I have here, Senator Tim Scott, is you do not want to accept reality of what is going on. Moment ago, a Wisconsin judge ruled that drop boxes can't be used in Wisconsin for elections. Ohio Supreme Court, we'll talk about a little bit later, overturns the political gerrymandering districts. In Tennessee, they're trying to carve up Nashville because they want to take one more seat. They've already carved up Little Rock, Arkansas, disenfranchising black voters. They're carving up Oklahoma City, Oklahoma to give them a further edge. Those are the things that are going on, Senator Tim Scott. And you won't even come to black media to talk about it.
you've been invited. Oh, but you'll run to Fox News that we know that we know who the white folks who watch them, but you won't even come to black media to discuss it. And again, Senator Tim Scott, you and your staff lied. You went on CBS's Face the Nation and you said it was a bridge too far that Democrats wanted to cut funding from police. Yet a year earlier, Senator Tim Scott, you yourself and your own proposal said that those who do not abide by the federal standards would get lose funding. Your own deputy chief of staff was quoted as such. I sent it to you and your staff and y'all haven't even responded. So you have absolutely no credibility on this topic. You are, are sitting there going along with what Republicans are doing. And then you talk about being in the tradition of Senator Edward Brooke, the first black United States Senator since Reconstruction. You, Senator Tim Scott, you are no Senator Edward Brooke. It was Senator Edward Brooke who stood up to his own party and racist Southern Dixiecrats and fought for fair housing and fought for voting in the 1960s. He was a black Republican. It was Senator Edward Brooke who helped broker the end of the filibuster in the United States Senate that opened the door to the Fair Housing Act being passed. It was Senator Edward Brooke who understood what it means to be a black man in America. Oh, you know what it means to be a black man in America. But the reality, Senator Tim Scott, you are choosing political ideology over anything else. Oh, I get it. You desperately want to be reelected this year. You largely want to appease those white voters in South Carolina. You want to keep a Republican from running against you. That's why you buddied up to Trump. But even you know what's going on. You know it. You see it. You see the laws being changed in your state. You see what your own party is doing in North Carolina. You see what they're doing in Tennessee and Georgia and Florida and Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama and Arkansas and Texas and Iowa and on and on and on. Yet you don't have the political courage to be a black man and say to your party, you are mad because y'all lost. None of these bills would be passed if Donald Trump had won Georgia, if he had won Arizona, if he had won Pennsylvania, if he had won Michigan, if he had won Wisconsin. Because what were the four cities that Donald Trump and those white domestic terrorists were mad about on January 6th? They were angry about Atlanta, Fulton County. They were angry about Milwaukee in Wisconsin. They were angry about Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. They were angry about Detroit. Republicans even said, let's count all the votes in Michigan except Detroit. Oh, you know the racial dog whistle, which has now turned into a racial foghorn. You know what's going on. 
Yet you will sit there and run the Fox News and parrot the same BS. That is shameful. Senator, when I do this show, I don't think about Democrats. I don't think about Republicans. I think about the ancestors. I think about the very people who did all they could to ensure you could sit in the United States Senate, to ensure that Senator Cory Booker could sit there, to ensure that Congressman Jim Clyburn can be in the majority. All of those folks who put it on the line. And I'm going to tell you, one of the ancestors who I will never, ever want to be associated with is Isaiah T. Montgomery, a black man who will go down for the rest of history as turning his back on black people for political expediency and because he owned a couple of businesses in Mississippi. That, Greg, is what we are facing. And we have to call it what it is. And I'm not singling Tim Scott out solely, but the reality is he's the only black Republican in the United States Senate. I'm calling out these people who are simply in denial about American history. These Democrats who tout, oh, we've got to have bipartisanship. We can't be keep passing bills and it's only us voting for them. As Clyburn said and we said, really? Well, then how in the hell did we get the 13th and the 14th and the 15th Amendments? Well, Roland, we got those amendments because of a civil war. I mean, with all due respect to Congressman Clyburn, right? It, it was on a partisan vote, but this was during a, during Reconstruction when the South was divided into five military districts and they couldn't come back into the damn Union. One of the conditions was to vote. So it's a little misleading to make it look like everybody voted, because if everybody had voted, we wouldn't have had the 13th. 14th and 15th Amendments. In fact, this was a military fight. And that's where, you know, I, I love what you said about uh, Isaiah Montgomery. Uh, of course, uh, Tim Scott. And isn't it funny how vocal cords constrict when cowardice is afoot? Uh, as, a Southerner, as a Southerner, I I was offended by, I mean, you know, come on, brother. That ain't Gullah Geechee. That's just your inarticulate ass with a screech in your voice because you're a mascot. You're a flunky. I mean, and a retainer. You're a man. You're a valet, brother. You're an attendant, is what you is. You're a doorman. You're a houseboy. Tim Mission accomplished Scott, but 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 he's worse than Isaiah Montgomery. Isaiah Montgomery was born on a plantation, Davis Bend, Mississippi. In fact, it was owned by Ben Davis, the older brother of Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. Isaiah Montgomery's father. Um, yeah, Joseph Davis was his name. His father's name was Ben. Ben Davis ran the plantation at a profit and put money in the Freedmen's account of the Freedmen's Bureau by turning a cotton profit during the Civil War. But the problem was his son Isaiah, born on that plantation, was Jefferson Davis's brother Joseph's houseboy. He let him learn how to read and write. And so he he kept him around. And when Davis fled the South and the Union Army basically gave the place over to Montgomery's father, they ran the plantation and they had a deal with Jefferson Davis's father to 
by the plantation, but this is what happened, white betrayal. And in the end of the day, when Jefferson Davis's brother's family took the, took the plantation back and Montgomery had to leave, his son Isaiah and others founded a little town called Mount Bayou. Mount Bayou was a very powerful place. When he came to that uh, legislative conference in, in, in Reconstruction to talk about rewriting that Mississippi Constitution, at least Isaiah Montgomery had felt the lash. Tim Scott has no excuse because he's a footman, a valet. He's a, he's a houseboy. And so you never felt the lash, so you didn't make a decision out of uh, quiet desperation. You made, as you said, Roland, a decision based on your political viability or what you perceive it to be, which leads us to the other Trimble Voice clip that you played, Kristen Cinema. Let's talk about that Toonie Loon from Arizona. Arizona, where they have figured a way through gerrymander and redistricting and redrawing the lines to move from a 5-4 Democratic advantage in the House of Representatives to a 6-3 Republican advantage. Kristen Sinema, who had 59 uh, billionaires, Forbes, Forbes made a report uh, in December, 59 billionaires contributed to her campaigns over the years. Only one of them lives in Arizona, a third are in New York, a third in California, and a third of the billionaires are in the financial uh, sector and industry. As you said, she's pocketing profit. She too, you're a house girl, you're a valet, you're a footwoman. Meaning what? The Senate has been bought, but this is where it gets interesting. When they cement white minority rule, they think that the rest of us are just going to stand by and say, well, they stole the fair and square. I guess I'll keep saluting and serving in the military and take my L. Don't you know it's the end of your punk-ass country? Don't you know that you, the, the, the United States Supreme Court making these decisions undermines the question of judicial legitimacy? Don't you know that stolen elections are what lead to people fighting in the streets? You don't seem to remember the United States Civil War. The road to the Civil War was paved with disfranchisement, beginning with the fact that we were never allowed to participate. Now, Clyburn is right. If you're going to pass any legislation now, you know what's going to have to happen? We're going to have to knuck if you buck. It ain't but two sides. And, and stop trying to appeal these people. Stop trying to talk to them. There is no we. There is no we're better than this. There is no bipartisanship. They're human beings and enemies of our common humanity. And Sonoma and Scott have been bought. And that ain't even black and white. Let them go off hand in hand together in a lovely generation. <laughs> Let it's it green. go. It's green. Uh, it's green. Lauren, what we're dealing with here is, again, we're dealing with a Republican Party that does not give a damn. They are going to... They, they, they are completely in lockstep with Donald Trump. You got Lindsey Graham saying he's not going to vote for Mitch McConnell to be the speaker if he is, does not have a working relationship with Donald Trump. They do not care. And so you got these silly Democrats somehow thinking that this is still the United States of 1980 or 84, where uh, it's George Mitchell uh, and others where they all get along. No, no, that's gone. Yeah. I, you know, I actually don't think that the problem is the Republicans, increasingly. I think the problem is what uh, Martin Luther King said in letter uh, from a Birmingham jail, which is the white moderate, the white moderate Democrat. Uh, I don't know whether you saw it, but uh, Dick Durbin actually criticized the president for... Uh, oh, yeah. I think he went a little too far. Yeah, he went a little too far in, in comparing people who were against voting rights to segregationists and Bull Connor. Why was that a little too far? And why was Dick Durbin criticizing the president on that? So that that whole thing of, you know, we look at these Democratic moderates or so-called moderates, Biden, 
Biden was actually one of them not long ago. He he tried to, you know, he was running on this idea of comedy between himself and the Republicans, and we had to get together on the filibuster. I mean, this whole thing about being against the filibuster for Joe Biden is a new a new thing that happened the other day. <laughs> we just found this out because he had this same ridiculous idea that he could somehow, uh, you know, get together with the Republicans and figure out how to do this. They're against it. They're against it because, you know, as, as Congressman Jeffries said, you know, the whole rundown that Jeffries had with regard to Republicans who agreed with, uh, you know, voting once upon a time was Nixon, Ford, I think Nixon, Ford, Reagan, Bush, right? Well, and then Congressman Jeffries says, well, what happened? What changed? Well, what changed was black people started to take power. That started with Barack Obama. That's it. Then that, we saw Stacey Abrams on Then we saw John Ossoff. Then we saw Reverend Raphael Warnock. We're seeing Val Demings. We're going to see Stacey Abrams again. We're what seeing the Congressional Black Caucus. People, we're seeing the CBC as the largest caucus in the on the Democrat side in the House. Right. And we're seeing black people take power, make decisions, get control. And I don't care whether we're talking about Justin Fairfax or Marilyn Mosby or any of these black people who are in charge of decisions that just happen to hit an indictment, just happen to hit a political crisis right at some key moment in time. Isn't it an amazing coincidence? But for a moment, let's just talk about the ones who did get elected or got close to getting elected. We saw Andrew Gillum almost get elected very close. His race was lost closer by, lost than— Lost by 30,000 votes. Exactly. His, it was closer than Abrams. It was closer than Beto O'Rourke. Right. He almost became the governor of Florida. We're talking southern states here. These are things that are historic. It marks the change in the demographics uh, in this country. They know it. They see it. They're passing the voting laws to stop it. And, you know, Kristen Cinema and Manchin, at the end of the day, you know, I always say to people, even though we talk about so many issues in, in our under our right. tent of, right. as African Americans, LBGT, et cetera, and so on, you're black first. Well, they're white first. They understand who's going to be in charge if they, you know, put preclearance back into play. They get it. Here, whatever Kristen Sinema is saying, it just makes no sense Got to me. It. She's so getting she's getting pressure from her white constituents right. not what it is. to let this happen. Uh, he, That's uh, what it uh, is. Faraji, uh, real quick, uh, yep. before I go to a break, uh, this is what King wrote in 1963, April 16. First, I must confess <laughs> that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the, KK or the Ku Klux Klan, mm. but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers mm. a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with, with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action who paternalistically feels he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. <laughs> Here's the deal. That's cinema, and although he's discussing the white moderate, that's, he's also talking about a Senator Tim Scott who goes, why can't Biden just talk about how things have gotten so much better in all of our progress? Because voting still has not been properly dealt with. Raja, go. Real quick, just how are we still in a place where, we, when we're talking about voting, which is supposed to be one of the greatest exercises of a citizen of the United States of America, 
Why is that such a problem to make people accessible or have access to the ballot box? I still can't wrap my mind around that point. But to, to the point of cinema and Tim Scott and others, look, man, if you want to play around at this time, and I think Dr. Carl and Lauren, y'all were both on point. If folks want to play around at this time, and to your point, Dr. Carr, the country is at a crucible. It is at a very, very important point. You play around with truth. You play around with what is what is right. You play around with what's in the best interest of people to change people's lives for the better. You play around with that, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to reap what you sow. And it's going to come down, and it's not going to... You know, sometimes people tend to believe, and this is Hollywood getting into our heads, sometimes people tend to believe that when something is falling apart, it just happens in one magical swoop. No. We're watching a political system, starting with the political representatives, yep. falling apart brick by brick, piece by piece, person by person, sanity by insanity. And, and, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing this thing falling apart in such a way it's gotten to the point now that, you know, you... We, we're, I mean, we can't even... How many times have we come onto this platform, Brother Roland? on this show, and we brought up the fact of you can't believe somebody just said this. You can't believe they're trying to stop this piece of legislation. But the insanity right now that's in Congress, the insanity that's in, that's in the minds of the people of America, white and black, and, and we, I mean, we're just all over the place, but we're watching a whole system just falling apart. And this is the residual impact. This is the result of that that you have discord, dissatisfaction, discontent, that you have people in confusion. You have leaders who can't lead and followers who don't know how to follow. I mean, we're just all over the place. And this country is going through a major, major shift. It's going through a major transition. We talked about it. Democracy is, is on the chopping block right now. Well, and I don't care if you get more and more into it and people are like, oh, this is about power. You are absolutely right. This is yes. all about power. And that's what it always has been about, which is why they fought the Reconstruction, which is why uh, they had the Compromise of 1876, which led to Jim Crow, uh, 18, compromise, Great Compromise of 1877 following the election in 1876, which is why the exact same thing. I have said this consistently, and this is going to be the last point I make before I go to break and go to my next guest. This is very simple. In the history of America, black success has always been followed by white backlash. Mm, Let me repeat that for everybody out there who hasn't right. picked the history book up, who is so caught up in memes, I need you to understand, in the history of America, black success has always been followed by white backlash. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about an article that was written uh, where all these white folks in Hollywood are now complaining about woke, woke, because they're now requiring th them to actually interview black directors and black actors and black cinematographers uh, and Latino uh, 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 folks working on movies. And so these people are like, so upset, oh, we can't find the job. Don't y'all understand? That was the exact same thing after Reconstruction. They're going to take our jobs. Don't you think that was the first thing they were yelling after the Civil Rights Movement? Oh, my goodness. See, what they said is, oh, okay, y'all can go to the park. Y'all can go to the swimming pool. Oh, hold up, y'all trying to work here?
Oh, no, no, hold up. Now, that, that wasn't part of the deal. That was always right. a deal. And so, absolutely. So, for everybody who's about post-racial America, no. The election of President Barack Obama caused some white folks in the country to go, oh, shit, it happened. Right. Oh, damn. And it was a consistent targeting of we cannot allow this to happen again. And that's why when many of us did not vote in the 2010 midterm elections, it opened the door and 16 state legislatures flipped to Republican control. That's how they got control of 31 governor's mansions. They got control of the House and the Senate. And then what happened? They then began to pass voter ID laws and voter suppression That's bills. Then you had them then, the Shelby v. Holder decision, which was then upheld by the Supreme Court. And it all kept coming because they said, oh, we are going to lose power. All we describing, y'all, literally, is the introduction to my book, White Fear, which is coming out this year. I'm trying to tell y'all, if all y'all black folks who sitting here saying, man, I don't know, I, I, ain't, man, I ain't gonna vote, I'm telling you right now, hey, this is real simple, you don't have to vote. That does not absolve any de Democrat running from, have, from not having an agenda. But what I'm telling you right now, trust me, go listen to what Steve Bannon is saying. They are right. executing a plan for minority right. white right. rule. And you better right. understand they want right. to run that bad boy from the Supreme Court to the White House, to the House, to the Senate, to the state governor's mansions, to the state house, the state Senate, down to the school board of education, to the county commissioners, to the city council, to the board of elections, because they're saying we are not letting go of this thing. And what did I tell y'all in that movie? The Good Shepherd, when Joe Pecci said, we Italians got the family in the church, the Negroes, at least he didn't use, ne he didn't use Negro, they got their music. And he said, mm. what do y'all people have? And he was talking about the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And the Matt Damon character said, we've got the United States of America. The rest <laughs> of you are just visiting. That was you're, the you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star <laughs> Network. Michelle. Hi, I'm Chaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered.
Young was last known to be driving his 2019 Silver Honda Civic in Houston on December 9, 2021. The 25-year-old is 5 feet 11 inches tall, weighs 160 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. He was last seen wearing a blue Billionaire Boys Club sweatshirt with gray sweatpants. Young has two tattoos on his right leg, uh, the Tasmanian Devil on the front and the Florida Lure uh, on, snake on, on the back. Uh, anyone with information about Young's 2019 Silver Honda Civic with the Texas license plate MDC, uh, um, uh, 9387 uh, or his whereabouts should call the Houston Police Department, folks. Uh, missing Persons Unit 832-394-1840, 832-394-1840. Let's go to Pennsylvania, folks, where there's a strange story. A Jamaican family desperately seeks answers after their relative was shot several times during a hunting trip with co-workers. Peter Bernardo Spencer was reportedly shot at least nine times in December. Spencer was dropped by his fiance for a hunting trip with a colleague uh, who reached out to him on Snapchat. A few hours later, the 29-year-old was dead. A 25-year-old man was taken into custody. Three other individuals and multiple guns were found at the scene but no charges have been filed. William Anderson is chair of the Allegheny Democratic Black Caucus. He joins us right now. William, I, I, I'm trying to understand. He goes hunting, he ends up dead, and nothing? Nothing. And um, thank, thank you, Roland, for having me on to um, shed light on this situation. You know, it, it's very tragic. And, you know, as you said in your former uh, comments that, you know, this is just what happens to blacks in America. So on December 11th, uh, Peter, he wasn't going hunting. He was going to the woods to hang out with some friends at, um, usually he assumed he was going to Nathan Meyer's mother's house. So his fiance usually dropped him off at uh, Nathan Meyer's mother's house on several occasions with usually with friends. But on this occasion, um, she drops him off at, uh, it was either a cabin or a mobile home in the woods of Venango County. And this was very strange to her because, you know, it was such a desolate area that she couldn't even ping Peter's location once she dropped him off. So, okay, so is there an investigation? And who's, and who's leading the investigation? So, allegedly, the Venango County uh, District Attorney, uh, his name is D. Sean White. He is he's in charge of the investigation and has been leading the investigation since December um, 12th, when Peter Spencer was murdered. And also, he, um, the, the PA State Troopers Heritage Affairs Department, which investigates hate crimes, is also involved in the investigation but we haven't gotten any information on what they're doing, and it's been since December 12th, and there has been no arrest, no one has been charged or anything. It, uh, are state officials involved in this? I mean, are folks being interviewed? I mean, brother just goes out and <laughs> shot, ends up shot nine times and dead? Uh, has been, there been a ruling from uh, the medical examiner? Have they ruled his death a homicide? Obviously. Yes. Yes, yes, sir. The medical examiner of Venango County ruled Peter Spencer's death a homicide almost, I, I think, immediately. 
So, so we, you know, as Venango County is a small county, you know, it's a Republican-controlled rural county in Pennsylvania, where all of the, you know, all of the people, a lot of the insurrectionists from January 6th, this is where, this is their breeding ground. You know, Western Pennsylvania is the breeding, breeding ground for all of these people. So we haven't gotten any cooperation, although it has been not only, you know, declared a homicide, but they had suspects in custody that admitted to shooting him, and they were released. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The suspects admitted to shooting him? Yes. Yes, they said there was some type of altercation, and they shot Peter in self-defense nine times, which in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, you know, you cannot declare self-defense, one, if you can flee the danger, and two, you cannot declare self-defense when you shoot someone nine times. This young man was shot twice above his butt, five times in his back once in his neck that went through his neck and broke his jaw, and once in his chest close range. And no charges have been filed against anyone since okay. December 12th. This is outrageous. Were all nine shots from the same gun? That's, that We haven't gotten any information to be able to come to that conclusion because they aren't cooperating. They aren't giving the investigators, um, the attorneys, any information. They aren't giving the family any information. And they have yet to respond to our request as the Democratic Black Caucus and the Black Political um, Empowerment Project to um, for information. And the only help that we've gotten was from um, Chandy Chapman, a local reporter here, um, an African-American female on our WTA uh, local station, was the only one to even investigate this and to help shine light on this. So we just thank you for you know giving us national attention so we can get justice for Peter. Has the family had a, an, an independent autopsy done? Yes, sir. And we, we not only have we had an independent autopsy done, but the autopsy was done by Dr. Sarah Weck. And, you know, Dr. Sarah Weck is one of the most famous coroners in the entire world. So he completed his autopsy um, on January 3rd. And, and Dr. Weck, in an interview on our WTAE with Chandy Chapman, told her that he'd never seen an incident like this in his entire career. When someone has been shot nine times and shot in the back and no charges have been filed. This is um, absolutely crazy. Um, certainly uh, keep us uh, abreast, uh, William, of, of what happens. Uh, you know, stay in contact with us. We certainly want to follow this story, but I, you don't get shot, shot nine times. And, and, and again, like what? Was his fingerprints on any of the weapons? How many guns were recovered? First of all, how many people were on the scene? Uh, that's that, that's just absolutely crazy. Yes, sir. We, we know that there were at least four four white men that, that were there on the scene. Four so white men on the we, scene with guns. There's an altercation, yes. and only one person ends up dead, and nobody else shot. Exactly. And as they're, as they're know, walking around free. Yes, sir. They, they were, I, I don't believe they were in custody longer than an hour. You know, this young man is dead. His family has gone through the holidays and have to restart their life. And, and I just want to reiterate that, that this young man was not an American citizen. He had only been in this country since 2013, has the, uh, the American dream. Has the Jamaican embassy demanded, uh, because, I mean, you know, obviously he's a Jamaican national, have they demanded uh, the federal authorities get involved? Yes. So, so we had a we had a Zoom meeting with the um, with 20 members of the Jamaican government yesterday from all over the country, 
and they are outraged in this. And the prime minister will be making a public statement demanding that America be held accountable for this because America owns, owns Jamaica a life, right? This young man was 29 years old. His future was bright. He came to this country, you know, seeking the, you know, Purple Mountains majesty, you know, amber waves of grain, you know, all these things that our anthem, you know, promises the world. And he came here in his life. He's been here for eight years and his life is over. Who has, who has the family hired to be their attorney? Um, they, they've hired... Um, I don't know the, the attorney's name um, offhand, but I, I can get that to you. And okay. they're going to get a team. They're going to have a team of attorneys to represent him because this no one attorney is going to be able to to handle this. Got you know, it. Because, like I said, this is pretty Jim Crow. Got so, it. William Anderson, I certainly appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. Um, quickly, I'm going to go to my panel here. Uh, you know, you know, Lauren is very interesting, uh, and the reason I asked that last question, Lauren is because whenever we have a lot of these cases, I get people, oh, there go that damn crook being crunk. He ain't never won no case. Well, people don't understand. Then I've, I've heard people talk about Sharpton, talk about Reverend Jackson, and they go on and on and on. One of the things that people don't understand, the reasons families also hire crump is because they also know how to bring national attention to these stories. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it sounds a lot like the Ahmed Aubrey situation where we, you know, everything went silent, he was killed, and everything went silent, and then all of a sudden the publicity that people like Ben Crump and Reverend Sharpton bring and so many others, it really started with the black press, I think, in the Aubrey case. And... Um, Really, Trayvon Martin as well, if you remember, mm -hmm. you know, yep. that started really quiet. And then, you know, there was... Oh, uh, I, there I was mean, I know it well because I was one of the first national people to make it go national. And right. we, and we exactly. could not, we could not... Look, I was at CNN and couldn't get mm -hmm. folks there uh, to get involved with it. And we kept pushing. And then social media, it built, it built, it built. And so there were other, Goldie Taylor and others, there were others who were out there tweeting and pushing that whole thing. And all of a sudden, then, then, that, then it rose to a national level. And, and, and I, I, I'm saying that, Faraji, because I need people to understand. Unfortunately, the reality of being black in America is mm -hmm. we have to elevate things. Frederick Douglass said, agitate, agitate, agitate. Black woman come up missing. These white folks on mainstream media ain't doing that story. Oh, but a white woman come up missing? Oh, we about to shut down the country like it's COVID to find her. And so this is the reality. We have to yell, holler, scream, kick, in order to get attention. And so th that's why, you know, again, which is also why platforms like this matter, because guess what? CNN ain't talking about it. MSNBC ain't talking about it. Fox News, ABC, NBC, CBS. And so, and then, while also tell the rest of these folk, uh, stop listening to all these black folks who, who, who are yackers on YouTube, who are nothing but full of mess, always talking about somebody else because they ain't spending mm -hmm. their time talking about cases like this. Hey, well, you know what, Brother Roland, to your point, that's exactly why we do need to constantly talk about it, especially a case like this of Peter Spencer that happened in a county um, in Pennsylvania that's probably, you know, it's a very small area, 
um, you know, very, very, you know, just kind of like pretty much a nowhere type of space. And you got to talk about it. And, and you got to think, of, you got to ask yourself, how many cases, if Peter Spencer, he certainly wasn't the first case, so it makes you wonder how many other people may have been victimized or killed in this man, and we don't know. We just don't know what's going on with them. The family can't get any real push on on finding or getting justice for these families. So these cases and these situations are happening all across the country. It's got to be raised up. And, and the other thing about, to the point about Ben Crump and others, that, look, they're going to bring a dollar sign. They're going to bankrupt the whole county. You know what I'm saying? They're going to say, OK, you say black... OK, you may not think black lives matter, but we do, and this is the cause. And so, you know, if they're going to bring that publicity, they're going to bring, they're going to bring the accountants, and they're going to force police stations and, and police, uh, you know, just police uh, stations in those, in those small areas, they're going to force them to find the real answer. But we got to do this. I mean, seriously, if black media don't look out for black people, then what's the purpose of black media? Uh, Greg, I listen to these details here. Uh, my goodness. This this is Emmett Till 2020. This is uh, so many other cases of how black folks' uh, our lives are completely ignored. This is exactly why Black Lives Matter. Uh, uh, that how that 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 moniker just simply rose up. It did. It, it, black Lives Matter is a response to the foundational assertion uh, about black life in the United States of America, and that is that there are no humans involved. Peter Spencer was lured and hunted and executed. And I think we all took note of your shock as uh, Chairman Anderson uh, indicated that his killers were uh, interrogated by their brothers and released because they, it's, after all, they, they didn't kill a human being. But I think, you know, in, in my mind, as I was listening to you talk to him, as we sit here, the word that kept coming back to me was impunity. Come on. They take our lives with impunity because they know that there's no price. But then the, the second to the penultimate question you ask, the second to last question you ask, now let's set aside uh, our brother Ben Crump and, and the domestic United States lawyers who will go and, like Representative uh, Anderson, make the mistake in my judgment of wrapping any uh, arguments about what should and shouldn't happen in the notion of America. We heard uh, Chairman Anderson say he came here for the purple, you know, for the mountain's majesty. And as you've said, you said it this week, and, you know, James Carvin let us say, you know, I lived in Philly for, for 17 years. Pennsylvania is, Phil is Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Alabama in between. And many times coming on that turnpike out them mountains in western Pennsylvania, yeah, that is the true face of white nationalist America. But the question you asked him about the Jamaicans, I don't think we need to, to we need to, we need to slow down and consider that. The fact that they met with the Jamaicans, as a Jamaican lieutenant governor of, uh, of Virginia, as you know, Lauren has been covering that along with her comrades. You know, she's Jamaican and she says the Second Amendment is good law and she says we should get over slavery, which she better not go to Nanny Town in Jamaica and say that because they'll run her ass out the country she was born in. But the point I'm trying to make is this. We must elevate these uh, these executions, and not just in the United States. The thing this fracturing little settler state is afraid of is when we link arms across borders. See, the Come Black on, Star God. Network isn't just a U.S. network. 
They are now. Now you let the Jamaican star bring us some heat. You let this Woo. case be brought up for the United Nations and American Negroes. Y'all loosen y'all's little grip on that red, white, and blue, and understand that blackness transcends any of these fake lines on this map. The minute every time we've done that in this in this set the state. It has shaken this state to its foundations. It is why they passed Brown versus Board of Education on a 9-0 on, on a vote at the Supreme Court. It is why every form of legislation we've gotten, Martin Luther King didn't stop his analysis in Selma. He didn't stop it in Washington, D.C. He reached out over the oceans, and it is one of the reasons why in the United States Civil War, they had to settle this mess. You put this man who was executed, you make him an international call celeb, and you bring that Jamaican heat, and then you bring CARICOM into it, and people start asking questions, you run them crazy ball heads out of town, to quote Robert Nesta Marley. These white boys rely on our fidelity to the United States of America to allow us to continue to be executed. Every time we look beyond these stupid shores, we've gotten some results. Don't, don't disarm yourself because you think you got loyalty to a flag because you lose your damn life. I'm going to, um, we, we had, of course, when I was at TV One, we had the Jamaican ambassador uh, to the United States on our show. I'm going to reach out to her uh, to, uh, to find out about this. I'll be very interested uh, in getting her perspective. Uh, and um, it also, it might mean um, doing a town hall uh, in uh, this town, uh, reaching out to the African-Americans there, putting a Robo-Mobile on the road, uh, heading, and heading to Western Pennsylvania. Uh, because mm. certainly some attention should be cast on this particular story here. So, folks, we'll be giving y'all uh, the updates. Again, I told y'all, we ain't interested in folk who full of mess. We here, we here to speak to the issues that involve black people. All right, y'all, got to go to break. We come back. We're going to talk about uh, the silly-ass NFL. Now only has one black uh, head coach of the Houston, Texas Fire, David Culley. Oh, they're saying, yeah, y'all good. Y'all can play on that field all day. You ain't going to be walking that sideline as the head coach. Uh, that's next right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Our stories are told. I 
Thank you for being the voice of Black America, Roland. Stay black. I love y'all. All momentum we have now, we have to keep this going. The video looks phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be scared. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? Hey, I'm Dolly Simpson. What's up? I'm Lance Gross, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. All right, folks, the 2021 NFL regular season is officially over. And like most seasons, the end came with a slew of fireworks across the league on Monday, normally called Black Monday. That's a good name. Brian Flores was fired as the head coach of the Miami Dolphins. They went from only three black NFL head coaches. Mike Tomlin, Pittsburgh. Brian Flores, Miami. David Culley, head coach of the Houston Texans. Well, today, the Texans, who finished 4-13, fired Cully after just one season. Hmm. Now, here was a team nobody expected to win a damn thing. Deshaun Watson made it clear he was not going to be playing for the Texans this year, and so David Cully had nothing to work with. So exactly why was he fired? Now, Brian Flores finished with a 24-25 record. His team began the season 0-7, but they actually ended the season doing very well. And, of course, his, as far as the opening his career, 10-6 there. Now, again, Mike Tomlin has been very consistent, uh, of course, coaching there in Pittsburgh. But what is it about the NFL when it comes to black coaches? Well, Josina Anderson joins us right now. Uh, she's an NFL insider. She's been covering this for quite some time. And, uh, Josina, a lot of people were talking about this on uh, Monday when Flores got fired. Now Cully gets, hired, gets fired. Now I'm hearing out of Houston that, oh, they may hire Brian Flores, but the bottom line is, talk about the short leash that black coaches have where they don't get the shots. What was it, Wilkes in Arizona had one season and he gets fired? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, the first thing that you start with is that over the league uh, has 70% uh, black players uh, over that percentage, rather, uh, in the National Football League. And definitely, you would like to be having more representation of black coaches uh, in the National Football League. Right now, uh, the NFL is down to just one black coach and Mike Tomlin. And also, you do have an additional coach, a person of color, and Ron Rivera uh, for the Washington football team. Uh, we did uh, lose two coaches, as you mentioned, and David Culley, and also Brian Flores in succession, um, you know, the past few days. Uh, definitely not the representation that the league is looking, nor the, um, nor the Fritz Pollard Alliance, uh, who monitors uh, minority hiring in the National Football League. Uh, when it comes to what you were saying as far as the short leashes that the coaches have, uh, certainly uh, when you are looking at uh, different options 
uh, you know, that uh, different coaches have right now um, in, in comparison, um, it, can, it, it definitely can look that way um, <laughs> for sure. Um, I, I, I saw a great story the other day, Josine, about how many uh, coaches in the NFL have family ties. How basically, hell, if you ain't related to somebody, you're gonna get, you're not gonna get a shot. Well, there is a lot of nepotism in in the in the National Football League. That is very true. Um, a, a lot of pedigree that gets passed on and affords different coaches opportunities. That goes without saying. You know, the question is, as how authentic are the interviews? How authentic are the opportunities? And, you know, what type of longevity do these coaches have um, to stay and really uh, fight through any uh, likely adversity that they would have, which is why the vacancy is there in the first place, to withstand that and really show what they have. I think that the Houston Texans opportunity was widely uh, regarded as a transition, particularly in trying to get over the a lot of the drama that was there with um, Deshaun Watson. And by all accounts, in comparison to last season, a lot of that has been quelled. And, and on top of just what happened to Davis Mills, uh, excuse me, uh, to um, uh, to David Cully, rather, is the, the job that Pep Hamilton did with uh, Davis Mills, a quarterback uh, coach as well. And we definitely don't want that to be overlooked as he is kind of, you know, standing by to watch what his situation is, Houston, and also around the league. But, yes, you can definitely uh, illuminate the short leash that uh, is not just perceived to be there but is there uh, with the black coaches, let alone the economic piece of what their contracts are worth uh, also in comparison. And even though a lot of people tonight are talking about the quote-unquote parting gift that David Cully got upwards of $17 million for the final year remaining, uh, there's still something to be said about uh, – you know, respect and entry of the position, respect while you're uh, in the position and uh, how you come out of the position and how you just want to be regarded around the league and widespread around the NFL. There aren't many people who are talking about this as uh, a legitimate uh, shot. And, and look, I mean, I, I, I've seen people, and look, I'm born and raised in Houston. I've seen people go, oh, he was terrible. He was awful. He made bad decisions. Bill O'Brien's ass was there seven years and made a litany of clock management decisions and other bad decisions. First of all, he should have got his ass fired when you when you trade DeAndre uh, Hopkins for some scrub ass running back. I can't even remember. Okay, so but but so it's like oh, and so well, uh, uh, Cully was was on anybody's list. Who says he's not a better head coach in the second year? But for him to get one year on a sorry team and get fired by the same three people. Cal McNair, Nick Casario, Jack Easterby, who hired him, which one of them should get fired? Well, here's the thing. I mean, obviously, just like with any job, right, every club or any job, you know, really, they have the right to make their staffing decisions. What I particularly have a problem with is the listing of reasons as to why uh, he was fired uh, uh, on the heels of his exit tonight which really none of them, and as you mentioned, some of the things that you're hearing people say there in Houston, none of them supersede, um, you know, the situation that he was in and brought into, which was that uh, of being a transition situation. So that really is not the point, nor do we want to hear those similar, you know, narratives um, and for some people out on Twitter, tropes that we uh, typically hear sometimes in this situation. And, that's, and, that, and, and none of that is to be negated, even if they do replace David Cully with uh, 
another person of color to fill that role. You know, typically, uh, whether it be in the National Football League, the journalism industry, whatever industry, a lot of times we do see that pivot <laughs> uh, to, you know, somewhat uh, discard some of the pre-existing things that are credible uh, uh, beforehand. And I'm not even saying so much that it's, uh, um, you know, a, a certified racial situation so much in terms of, um, you know, other, uh, by comparison of other opportunities that we've seen in the National Football League, because there's a debate out there as to whether David Culley should have even taken the job. And I also want to uh, say that there are people in the Houston Texans organization that I do uh, uh, respect. But with regards to the handling of the re authentic authenticity of this opportunity, I do think that there is a viable discussion there and, uh, and whether it should have been elongated to be more honorable in that sense. Well, I'll say this here uh, as, as the final point. You can respond to this here uh, that, uh, you know, the decision that they made, how he was treated, uh, only giving him one year. Let's remember, they finished 4 and 13 yet la this year. Last year, Deshaun four Watson, four, uh, Deshaun Watson, well, there are 17 games this year, right? Mm -hmm, right. So they were 4 and 13. 4 and 13. Last year, Deshaun last Watson led the NFL in passing, and they were 4 and 12. Right. Mm -hmm. That is correct. Just saying. Correct. Mm -hmm. And and so and I really think, though, Roland, that what also is fair to be illuminated in this situation is and that is a fair point, And I've seen that point circulated around Twitter. The record that you speak of that they had last year, four and 12 with Deshaun Watson, four and 13 this year without him. But I think this even more so speaks to the availability of the quality of coaches that are hitting the market now relative to all of these firings that are happening and the Houston Texans simply wanting to capitalize on that. And that is fine. That is their prerogative. Hell, they could have fired Leslie Frazier last year. He was a finalist. Yes, and right, and, and, and I was just having some conversations with Leslie Frazier this evening. And, you know, everything works out to be what it ends up being. Leslie Frazier right now was with the Buffalo Bills. Uh, Sean McDermott, the head coach of that team, uh, is touting Leslie Frazier as making sure that he gets the credit for being the defensive coordinator for the top defense and, you know, one of the top defenses in the National Football League. And obviously they're on their way to the playoffs. David Culley comes into the situation when he was uh, interviewed on Steve Weiss's podcast, talked about understanding what this opportunity was, but it was important for him to do this based on, you know, his relationship with his father. And he gets a big bag on the way out. Everybody can decide what's important to them or not. But what I do not think is fair is, one, to sully his name on the way That's out. That's right. Especially, especially given what the reality of the situation was and for us to be truthful about what the situation was. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Josina Anderson, tell everybody about your show where they can watch it. Yes, and I'm sorry that I'm on. Uh, I know, Roland, you're getting this on me texting, talking about get a, a, a real uh, tripod, you know, <laughs> my phone. But in my studio, the, my, 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 my camera, my camera for my show, the crew, uh, with Morris Chestnut, Brian Erlacher, Josh Norman, and David Augustine, that is on a tripod. So, um, but I'm, whenever you call, you know, I'm going to uh, make way to do your show. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. it everything that you're doing, uh, building this network and representing the uh, black voices, everything that you're doing in terms of being an example for someone like me uh, and showing the importance of black ownership 
and building out this network. So kudos to you for being that example and continue on. Well, you know, every time I'll support you in what you do uh, and everybody watching, <laughs> this ain't the first time I've talked to her about technical stuff. We've had other, <laughs> we've had, we've had other conversations about backdrop, lighting, cameras, all this sort of stuff. Uh -huh. So that's what I do. Josine, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Love you too. Bye. Love you. Thanks a lot. See, I, I want to go to my panel here. The, the thing that, that's interesting here for me, Faraji, that people, first of all, I'm going to do this here. This is David Culley. He spoke, the season ended on Sunday. He's talked to the media on Monday. Listen to this. How did this experience challenge you as a, as a leader? Hey, I'm sorry, Brandon. How did this experience as a first-year head coach challenge you as a leader? Did you learn anything about yourself, and, and what do you feel like you improved? Brandon, I knew there were going to be challenges uh, when, I, when I first came here. And, and again, I, I, I've told people this, and not in a negative way. You know, if, if everything was all right before I got here, I wouldn't be here. So the point was, I knew going in there were going to be things that I'd have to deal with. Uh, and that we, we dealt with, uh, and I felt like, uh, again, because of my experience that I've been with some uh, very good head coaches, have gone through some things that were similar to this when we were building uh, uh, the program. And uh, those things helped me along the way. But I, I, there wasn't anything that I think that happened during the course of the year that I haven't seen happen before or something similar that I kind of had an idea of how I wanted to deal with that or how I should deal with that. So, Faraji, here's what I find to be interesting. Uh, I've been looking at all these comments, even from Houston Texans fans, and I've been seeing, oh, man, he made all these mistakes. Um, you know, he was a wide receivers coach. He had never been a head coach. He had never been an offensive coordinator. He wasn't on anybody's list to be a head coach. Last year, the Detroit Lions hired a tight end coach named Dan Campbell, who had never called offensive plays, who had never called defensive plays, and hired him to be their head coach because of his leadership. Same thing the Texans said. The Lions finished 3-13 and 13 this year. Three I'm sorry, 3-13-1. Dan Campbell didn't get fired. Faraji, uh, you're on mute. Yep, gotcha. Uh, so, for example, my favorite team, the Baltimore Ravens, they hired John Harbaugh, who was a special teams coach. Right. And he's been and, and and he's been he's been coaching for, I think about almost ten years, a little bit less. I have to check the numbers on it. But he's been coaching. I'm really surprised that they let this coach go after one year. I mean, it's the Texans. They're gonna need some work. They're going to need some real work, and you can't, you can't expect the real work to be done. Everybody know in the NFL that teams really kind of turn the corner by, you know, after a losing season, maybe a year or maybe two years or three years after that losing season, right, because you got to get the players. But to see, to see them treat black coaches like this, and let me tell you, even though Mike Tomlin is a black coach, I'm not a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, I, I think that his time has run. I think he's at the end of his course being the head coach of, of, no, of Pittsburgh. No, you're not. But no, you're not. No, you're not. Huh? No, he's not. Because here's the deal. The Pittsburgh, first of all, the Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, they believe they, they believe in continuity. They have only yes. they've only that had they've only had three head coaches in the that's last true. 40 years. Uh, and so that's what they believe in. But but 
Tomlin can't be let off the hook either because when he when 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 he was on with, on Brian Gumble's show Real Sports and Gumble was talking about him about the lack of coaches, uh, you know, uh, uh, Tomlin spoke on that whole thing. But in Tomlin's 17 years in Pittsburgh, Tomlin has never had a black offensive or offensive or defensive coordinator. Mm, Lauren. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So. To me, the whole thing is just plantation. I mean, it reminds me of the music business. It's it's black talent, white money, you know? And and what world do we live in where you have a league that's 70% black? 70% of the players are black. And you have one black guy standing on the sideline that can call himself the head coach. What world <laughs> is that? So you know that all these players who have been retiring all these years, I mean, even... I, I mean, I can't even remember a time where this league was less than 70% black. But if all these players are eligible for coaching, et cetera, and so on, that know this game, and you have one black head coach. At no time should you have one black head coach. But the NFL taught us all we needed to know with the Kaepernick situation. That was pretty much the the, the total thing that we needed to know there in terms of what these white owners think about black male individual thought because they're fine with you as long as you're making money for them and they're fine with you as long as you shut up and play and shut up and dribble you know whatever it is that it takes to get them richer is all good the minute you turn into an individual person who is thinking and saying things and standing up for self and being a person in full then it's a problem and that's why there is not more head coaches on that side as somebody who's a new york giants fan and I do pay attention to the Washington <laughs> Football Club. You know, we just watched Joe Judge get canned. Joe Judge was an mm. absolute disaster. You know, as somebody up here in, in, in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C., obviously we've watched Jay Gruden, which was a disaster. We watched mm -hmm. Jim Zorn, who was a disaster. Jay Gruden's big thing was to, you know, get mad at RG3 all the time. And, you know, it, it just the reason he was there is because his brother was a good head, head coach. He was sort of laughable. We watched for years Jeff Fisher, who was a disaster. Oh, my God. <laughs> they they swore just... Jeff Fisher was this right. unbelievable head coach. He sucks. <laughs> right, right, right. That's right. And, and that one alone, that one alone would tell you that you can be an incompetent, mediocre person as, as long as you're not black. I mean, that was crazy. That was absolutely crazy. But to me, I, I can't think of a situation where you have all these professionals in a particular sport, 70% of whom are black. These are the people who bring the gate, that bring people into the, you know, that, that bring fannies to the seats and get people watching and get your TV contracts. And, and all the white folks are making the money on the sidelines. Same thing with college sports, which is a complete, another complete ripoff uh, where black people should be making the money. I mean, but it's the same thing with TikTok and everything else. It's like, we bring the cool, <laughs> we bring the money, we bring the people, uh, but we somehow get screwed when it comes to uh, <laughs> the moment when the money has to be made and when, when control uh, has to happen. It's just an incredible thing. You know, Greg, um, there, I'm sure there are some folks who are, who are watching who are like, yo, man, that's the NFL. We got to stop watching. Got it, take it. But what I need people to understand is that when we have these conversations, you can just take NFL 
and remove that and then put in NCAA. And then you can just remove NCAA and then you can just slide in Wall Street. You can just take out Wall Street and just slide in Silicon Valley. We're talking about systems. Troy Vincent, who is a former NFL player uh, who, uh, who works, for the, works for the NFL, gave an interview this week where he was critical of uh, how black coaches are being treated, how they get short tenures. And people go, oh my God, Troy Vincent, he, he works for the NFL. Let me remind people who don't quite understand this whole thing, Greg. Roger Goodell is the commissioner of the National Football League, makes like $50 million a year. He does not run the National Football League. Roger Goodell is an employee. He does not have sole authority. There are 32 owners of the National Football League. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about what's the problem with hiring black coaches, it's not an NFL problem. It's 32 owners. It's 31 white men and one Pakistani American in Shahid Khan who owns the Jacksonville Jaguars. I need everybody to understand Come wow, on. folks are running around with their jerseys and, oh, that's my team. No, it's not your team. <laughs> right. It's the right. team of 32 <laughs> billionaires. They sign off on who is the head coach. In the history of the NFL, if I'm correct, um, let me look up. I just want people to understand how many... And I think the answer is zero. How many black NFL presidents? See, I want everybody to understand hierarchy. Let's see here. Jason White, excuse me, I'm sorry, my apologies. Jason Wright, who came on this show last year, when he was named president of the Washington football team, he became the first African-American ever to be the president of the team. Wow. Owner, president. Now, Farage is in Baltimore. People know about Ozzie Newsome. Ozzie Newsome right. was the general manager. Yep. Meaning there are people who were above Ozzie. Now, Fadano GM should go into the Hall of Fame as a player and as an executive. But there are people above him. President, y'all, president is over the entire team. Not just the product on the field, but advertising, marketing, promotions, every facet of the team. And so what we are talking about in the NFL, Greg, is an absolute apartheid system. Black folks, you are nothing but athletic sharecroppers in the NFL. <laughs> you are to perform for us on the field. But when your black ass is done, the best you're going to get is to be maybe a coordinator, 
But for the most part, you're going to be a running back coach. You're going to be a wide receivers coach. That's the best you're going to get. It is absolute apartheid in the NFL. Yes, sir. But before I say anything else, I, I want to um, note the fact that you slid from behind the anchor desk and moved to another part of the studio. Well, you know, I mean, you know, we got we got space, so you know, I figure I ain't just want to stay seated, you know, because I because I because I thought about going to the green screen, then I thought about going to the stand-up position with the Black Lives Matter uh, in the background. So I want to go ahead and hang out here with James Baldwin, Mr. B, and Ida B. Wells Barnett. No question. Especially with Josina Anderson. And then, uh, and then talking football, I had to have, of course, right here, this is just so y'all know, just so y'all know what's on the set. That's the Gram when Gramlin won uh, the uh, 2016 National Championship. They gave me that football. And, of course, y'all see what I got over here on the shelf. These are the Colin Kaepernick Nikes he sent me uh, right here. So I got these here as well. So I, I, I wanted to have that as the backdrop. Okay, Henry ain't gonna zoom in, so let me go ahead and manually zoom it in. <laughs> so y'all see, these are the, the, the Kaepernick Ooh. specials right here. Uh, so go, go ahead, Greg. No, actually, now, now, you and your crew run a tightly scripted show. But I swear, y'all, we did not coordinate this. When you mentioned Grambling, Hugh Jackson, which is one of those, who's one of those cats who got his throat cut a couple of times, uh, and Colin Kaepernick, Therein lies the point of entry for what must be done. LVB laid it out, Lauren. Lady, you laid it out, Lauren. This is this is a capitalist show, and it's a circus. And you said it, Roland. That this is apartheid, and this it, it, we we know when pressure is being put on. And the metaphor was perfect. Can't argue with Roger Goodell. You got to deal with his owners. Any more than you can argue with Tim Scott or Kristen Cinema or Cosplay Cold Mine and Joe Manchin. You got to argue with their owners. And yeah. when yeah. we see their owners threatened, is when we see movement. Now, what I would I what I would have asked Josina Anderson is what would it take to get movement? Quite frankly, I had to look up the fact I didn't know that the Texans had a black coach, and I didn't know the Dolphins had a, a, a black coach. I don't know any of the records for the NFL over the last several years because when you held those shoes up with Colin Kaepernick, that reminds folk that some of us said we would never watch the National Football League again. I don't follow the scores. I don't know who's in the playoffs. I just learned from y'all that the Bills are in the playoffs. I could give, well, that's not true. I couldn't give less of a damn. But here's what happened. My little whatever makes me feel satisfied and gives me more time to do real work and this kind of thing. It doesn't have any impact on them. If enough of us did it, it might, if we reflect back to when folks start taking the knees and Donald Trump said, get those sons of bitches out of here, and black folks started rumbling, it scared the living shit out of those owners. Uh -huh. And even Jerry Jones was on his, both of his knees in Cowboy State, because please, Negroes, just at that moment, but guess what? They were able to put it back in the box. Now, your bridge, the bridge you built with the NC2A, I think that is the perfect point of entry because what's being talked about now off camera, what's being talked about now out of the earshot of the press is the fear of a slave rebellion at the NCAA uh, level. Why? Because Deion Sanders, that's cute. Till you start raiding 
the top recruits. And that's still kind of cute. We can still kind of play along with you unless you get too many of them. And wait a minute, did some, did some of them go to Eddie George at Tennessee State? Wait, did Hugh Jackson get some at Grambling? Wait, what the hell's going on? At that point, you see a rematch of what they tried to do with Rich Paul and LeBron James a couple of years, which is collude between the NC2A and the NBA to shut this slave rebellion down. The only way the NFL is going to change is when we force them to change. And quite frankly, we're not going to force them to change because uh, we are too heavily invested in things that are comfortable. So the NC2A might be the level we need to, to focus on because the distinct lesson I'll say, the difference between the NC2A and the NFL is the NC2A and HBCUs are nominally black control. Mm. And fans don't care. A lot of fans do, the racists or whatever, but we won't care if Grambling is playing in the Celebration Bowl in Atlanta against North Carolina. Well, it won't be North Carolina AT. They're leaving the league. South Carolina State or whoever, or Jackson State is playing against. We don't care. In fact, we would probably prefer that. Alabama and Georgia, full of black players in two states where the white nationalists run supreme and ain't never one of them Negroes on the University of Georgia Bulldog roster stand up and say, no voting rights, no playing. In fact, you got one brain-damaged bulldog that might be in the damn United States Senate that will make Tim Scott look like uh, Jesse Jackson in terms of oratory if they send that doggone fool to the damn Senate. But the point is this. They will respond to nothing until we force them to do. They got mm. scared of a slave rebellion, and you saw what happened. Ain't going to be no black coaches. If I was them, I wouldn't hire no black coaches either. What you going to do, make them do it? History tells us no. Great point there. Well, I need, need people to understand, folks, uh, is, uh, again, um, it's the reality of being black in this country. <coughs> we have an update for you uh, out of Ohio. An internal probe clears two Dayton police officers caught on camera pulling paraplegic driver Clifford, Clifford Owensby out of a car by his hair during a traffic stop. Department officials say while pulling of Mr. Owensby's hair may have been visually offensive to some people, the act was on the low end of the force spectrum. The police department's investigation did fault the two officers for muting <coughs> excuse me, their body-worn cameras during parts of the stop. <coughs> I have said numerous times on this show, Lauren, you touch that camera, your ass should be fired. Yep. You mute it, you turn it off, or you don't turn it on, you should be fired. Yeah, obviously there's a consciousness of guilt issue with regard to fooling with the camera during an arrest. It indicates that you, of course, want to hide something or, you know, uh, leave something out of the interaction, which makes no sense if police are arguing that, you know, people are resisting and, you know, there are good reasons for there to be a use of force. Well, if that's true, then why would you mess with the camera? Faraji. I mean, you know, it, it, if it, you said it's on the low end of, of, of forceful tactics, and I mean, look, we, we're, we're starting to see police uh, departments across this country really kind of pushing back. It's very slow in the pushback, but there is some pushback. 
But when you when you see this type of situation happening again and again and again, I mean, again, we have to we have to amplify it. That's why we have this station. That's why we have this show, because we have to amplify when the wrongdoing is happening. And I'm agreement with you, brother Roland Lauren, that if you turn off your camera, if you if you fondle the camera, if you do anything with the camera that impedes the camera from functioning properly and recording the whole scenario, then you should automatically get fired. There should be no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Greg? Yes, yes, yes. The Patter Rollers, cleared by their brethren again in Dayton. What was Clifford Owensby's crime? He was parked for too long a time. Then he decided that he was not going to get out of his car. So once they said that, he, had, he was not compliant. He escalated. And then the report, they said, uh, well, yeah, it might have been uh, unusually offensive, uh, visually offensive to some people. Meaning what? You N-words might not like what you saw, but it, we, we turned off the camera so you couldn't see everything. But uh, ultimately, uh, the police achieved, and this was in the report, success. What was their objective? To remove him from the car and to cuff him. Mission accomplished. These paddle rollers are going to stop when they come up to your car and say, uh, you've been parked here too long. Blam! I am not advocating violence. But what I'm saying is, again, impunity. They're, they were cleared by their brethren. There's no internal investigation. There is, we set these rules up so we can do whatever the hell we want. It started when we went and got y'all on these boats, and it has continued to this day. And the only time we back up from it it's when something can be triggered that will make us back up from it. And talking to them ain't going to be the trigger. Well, <clears throat> they always got find a reason. Navient will shell out $1.85 billion in a settlement for predatory practices. Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro says the settlement includes $1.7 billion in student debt cancellation and $95 million in restitution. Shapiro says it resolves claims that Navient led student borrowers into long-term forbearances instead of giving them advice on less costly repayment plans. However, the New York Times reports that Navient says it did not act illegally and did not admit fault in the settlement. Well, look, when your ass almost paid $2 billion and you always come up, oh, we're not admitting fault. Don't nobody, don't nobody give up $2 billion and your ass wasn't at fault. <laughs> but hey, we got some form of student, student debt uh, uh, relief, uh, Greg. As, and, and to everybody watching, I keep trying to tell y'all, why was this settlement possible? Because it was state's attorney generals that sued Navient. Mm. It was people like Keith Ellison. It was like my man uh, Kwame in Illinois. Uh, y'all, I keep telling y'all, stop looking just to Washington, D.C. There's power in these states. We just got to know how to use it. So uh, glad to see that. So if you're one of the folks out there uh, who uh, had to pay back um, Navy Hope you uh, get uh, get hooked up. Folks, five black history sites will be getting $50,000 from a liberal advocacy group based in Alabama. So the Poverty Law Center selected the recipients in consultation with the Congressional Black Caucus members. Uh, sites include the Mothers of Gynecology Monument in Montgomery, the Zora Neale Hurston National Museum of Fine Arts in Eatonville, Florida. Other recipients include the Theocole Memorial Project in Woodbine, Georgia, the Fannie Lou Hamer Civil Rights Museum in Belzoni, Mississippi, and the Cecil Williams South Carolina Civil Rights Museum in Orangeburg, South 
South Carolina. And so uh, glad to hear that. Also, a new doll will be hitting the shelves on Monday. Mattel is honoring black journalist and activist Ida B. Wells Barnett. That's her right there. As part of Barbie's Inspiring Women series. Mm. That don't look like Ida B. Hell no. <laughs> Although she got a copy of the free speech, Roland. Where they get that copy of the free speech, brother? Now, at, least, at, le at least they got that. At least they got that. So I just want y'all to know, that's how to be right. No, -uh, come, come back to the studio. That, that's her right there, y'all. That's what she looked like. Right. It's like she got a wig on. I mean, that's right. her hair. Okay, that's what she looked like. <laughs> All right. Wells was born into slavery in 1862, was an early civil rights activist who used her investigative skills to tell untold stories. She later co-owned the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight newspaper. She was given a posthumous Pulitzer Prize in 2020 for her brave reporting on the lynchings of black people in America. She also helped create the NAACP. Uh, so, uh, thoughts, uh, Lauren Faraji? Greg, Lauren, you first. Oh, I, I'm, I'm there with Greg. Uh, where's that that copy of the Memphis Free Speech? We got to get the dog just for that. Well, <laughs> okay, but, right, because, because, cool right because as I told y'all, as I told y'all, uh, we have in my office, uh, we, we have our black, uh, our uh, black owned media matters um, uh, mural. And the reality is um, they firebombed her office and there are no copies no copies of that newspaper that survived. Uh, and so uh, there you go. Uh, Faraji, go ahead. No, I, you know, I always think that it's pretty cool, even though it may not look like the person, but I do think that it does pushes the envelope for uh, our children to learn. And I mean, I, I hope, and I don't see, I don't know how many uh, little girls still play with Barbie dolls. I mean, it used to be super popular back in the 80s and 90s. I'm not sure if it's what it is now, but... They trying, I mean, to, they, they trying to sell some dolls. They trying to sell some. Okay, but you know what? Any way to get our history out there, whether it's through this, like through this whole doll initiative or whatever the case may be, Let's. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. I mean, but I, I, I do want to know. Hold on. Let me let me let me look it up. Uh, do y'all know of any other proceeds are going to um, black causes? Let's check. I'm checking no. right now. Any like, for I, instance, that I know there are organizations that, and I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Let me. I'm looking on at here. Least, at least, at least in ABJ. Yeah, absolutely, but, absolutely right. Yeah. So I'm I'm look I'm look I'm looking on here. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm looking, I'm looking, hmm, looking like, uh, I might have to make a phone call. Would you? So, Roland, seriously, because Mattel, a billion dollar industry, they got everything right. from He-Man to, I mean, they got all the stuff, Thomas the Tank and whatever. Now, Frida, they have, they have By Angelou, they have, uh, Rosa Parks with that damn Cleveland yeah. Avenue bus, which I find offensive, but that's neither here nor there. Um... They tried Frida Kahlo. Frida Kahlo's family shut it down. Frida Kahlo's mm -hmm. family said that does not look like her. First of all, y'all messed up the eyebrow. Second of all, the dress ain't right. And in Mexico, they made them take those dolls off the shelf. They said, hell no. Nah. So well, we always... Well, that, that, that's, that's also what happens when you run a country. <laughs> See, well, and, and you know what? Therein lies the lesson. As you stand in a studio you own, in a platform you own, where we own, it would, Ida B. Wells, I'm so glad you said it. It reminded me. Ida B. Wells, publishing in the UNIA newspaper, Negro uh, World, advocated that black children should have black dolls. She bought black dolls for her own children. Man, I almost forgot about that. And they had something, the UNA called the Negro Doll Factory. 
And here we are with Ida B. Wells' Barbie in the company where Barbie will always be the queen. And I don't think they just took Barbie heads and painted them a different color because the nose is a little too wide. So they tried, but I much yeah. rather would have had her have in her hand, perhaps her pamphlet Lynch Law in all its phases. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they got to get that $30. So go on to Target and Walmart and get y'all out of your wells and celebrate <laughs> your heritage. They count they money. Well, I just sent the tweet to see what they doing. And also, I've already sent a tweet to the ambassador, John McIntyre of Jamaica. Excuse me, sent him an email uh, yes. about uh, coming on the show as well. So I, I, I told y'all yesterday um, what we're doing and how we, we, we're not playing around. Uh, I told y'all, all the Mau Mau haters out there, I don't give a <laughs> shit what they think. I don't give a shit what they think. Uh, because we are about African-Americans, we're about standing up for our folks. That's why we built this. And we got some other stuff coming down the pipe that's gonna blow y'all out the water. That's why we want y'all to uh, spread the word, download our Black Star Network app. We're on all platforms, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, uh, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Xbox, uh, Samsung Smart TV as well. And again, when you also give to us, when you give uh, to support our Roland Martin um, uh, fan club, that's critically important because again, your dollars are making it possible for us to do what we do. So Ed Buller, Minister Robert Fields, Odessa Palms, Verdell Lee, uh, Daryl Lavelle, Donnie Alford, Nor Nor Norvell Mollox Jr., uh, Barrington Scott, uh, Inga Jackson, Victor Williams, Cheryl St. John, David Price, Rochelle Fouquet Black, Joel Clark, Wanda Bright, Stephanie Avent, uh, Joe, Bobby Ross, Zendra Jones, Jerome Tate, Tyrone Stumbry, uh, let's see, Kenneth Lord, uh, Landry Johnson, Jeffrey Carter, David Moore, Quentin Green, Patricia Wilson, Gladys Stewart, uh, let's see here, Lynn Dorn Spencer, Faith, uh, Lynette Whitehurst, Deidre Langford, Rashad Ritchie, uh, brother, I appreciate you, Jox Jones, Antoinette Knoll. Y'all, all these people I just announced gave anywhere from a dollar to a thousand dollars because they support what we're doing. And so please, cash app, pull it back up, y'all, put it back up. Cash app, R Martin Unfiltered, dollar sign, R Martin Unfiltered, PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered, Venmo is RM Unfiltered, Zelle is rolling at rollingsmartin.com, rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com. Uh, some of y'all have asked, this is one of the tops that I got when I was in Ghana. Uh, I got this hat from some African brothers. I know, Greg, I know, Greg, you've been peeping this. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. Y'all go, y'all go, y'all go ahead and zoom in. So I, I know you've been peeping this. So you know. So uh, it's a so it's a it's a black-owned company. They're on Etsy. Uh, so I had I had uh, you look at my Instagram page. I had one on yesterday. It was maroon. So I got about six or eight of these. So these are way too cool. Yes, they do keep my head warm when it's outside. So uh, I, I so I like the hat. So I want to had to go ahead uh, and rock this for you. And let me go ahead and tell y'all this here. I was on the phone on Tuesday with various ministers from, ministers from Liberia, and we are planning right now uh, to travel to Liberia next month for the 200th bicentennial of Liberia. Of course, mm. a country that was founded by freed uh, slaves of African descent. Uh, they're kicking off their, uh, their 200th anniversary, and we are going to be partnering with Liberian State Television to live stream all of the developments that week. I said to them, ABC, NBC, CBS, American Networks don't give a damn about Liberia's 200th anniversary. We do. Mm. And so the Black Star Network, to my knowledge, is the only black-owned media company, no black cable network, nobody black targeted, nobody else, 
who is who is going to be traveling to Liberia to cover all the festivities. We're already working out an interview with the president of the country, uh, other officials. Uh, we're going to be talking to folks, and so we're literally putting it all together right now. Uh, and so, <clears throat> be on the lookout. Now understand, y'all, uh, it's like right now, um, you know, uh, the time difference is a little bit different. Uh, and so uh, we're going to broadcast the show from there. So we probably not going to, like, it's 1.18 a.m. right now, which means we, we would come on the air at 11 p.m. We're going to come on earlier. So we'll work all that out. But I just want y'all to know, which is why I'm letting you know why your resources matter. And so I'm looking at bringing a team of four people. Uh, and then I'm also, I've already put the word out because we're going to hire a Liberian crew as well to be able to help with us with this. And so our goal is to broadcast for a whole week all of the events to kick off this 200th anniversary of the founding of Liberia, of course, which was founded by freed slaves, uh, folks with African descent. And so that's what y'all need to understand in terms of what we are doing. I told y'all we were doing some major things here at the Black Star Network. Now you understand what it is that we are doing. We are not just interested in covering what happens here. We are very close to finishing and launching uh, the year of return. When I my visit to Ghana in 2019, we're putting the final touches on editing that as well. And so, what, so again, y'all. So when I when I'm talking about uh, giving, when I'm talking about supporting what we do, it's to pay for staff and travel to do these type of things. Uh, I'm serious about reaching out to the people in Pennsylvania and taking this show on the road and doing. I was show there uh, regarding the Spencer case. This is why we need it. And so all my haters, I just want to let y'all know, all my haters are sitting their asses at home talking about what we say. They ain't doing what we do. So that's why we don't worry about them. So for everybody who just yakking, everybody with them bad lace fronts, Everybody who's sitting here uh, or talking all that trash, all the people who running around talking about they this and that, using every letter and number possible, describing themselves, we are about doing the work of black liberation, which is bringing you news and information and voices that you're not seeing. And I ain't got no problem saying it. There is no black cable network. There is no other black online source that gave you today, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, Melanie Campbell, that gave you, of course, a breakdown of what happened with voting rights, that gave you Scott Bolden came here for his first interview about the indictment of Marilyn Mosby, talking with the brother out of Pennsylvania about the Spencer case, talking with Josina Anderson. Y'all, we ain't playing. And as Greg has said to y'all before, okay? And again, Black News Channel, cool, I'm good with them, but that's a black targeted network. They got money from a billionaire who owns the Jacksonville Jaguars. I ain't got no billionaires backing me. I ain't got no millionaires backing me. You know what I got? I got blackenaires, people who are helping us, people who are giving $1, $5, $10, $25, $50. And I do have some white supporters as well uh, who are supporting us because I've had white folks hit me up and say that they believe in what we do. And y'all remember the sister who said that she was watching our show. She's a white woman from West Virginia. She said she saw Reverend William Barber and that's how she got involved with the Poor People's Campaign in West Virginia because she was watching Roland Martin unfiltered. Y'all, we ain't playing. And so to the haters, we got work to do. I'ma see y'all tomorrow.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.